Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that in this life full of hazards, perils, and bypasses that are not helpful for us or our neighbor, you have our back and you have our front. You care for us, you lead us, help us to trust you even when we can't see a way. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. As uh, Karen already alluded, one of God's greatest miracles, probably the most dramatic, was the parting of the Red Sea. Now, that would be a pretty cool power to have, would it not? I mean, admit it. If you had that power, wouldn't you want to go to Lake Superior, kind of like Karen was talking about, just so you could part Lake Superior and your friends could walk through it? If I had that power, that's what I would do. You fill in your own blank with what you... Or if not, um, Lake Superior could, could be a bowl, as Karen has already done and will do again soon. Or maybe a bowl of tomato soup splitting that. No, it's, it's true. It's happened. In the movie Bruce Almighty, Bruce, played very capably by Jim Carrey, has been given the power of God for a week, and he's trying out his new powers. When the real God shows up, uh, played by Morgan Freeman, he's not so impressed with Bruce's little trick. Let's take a look. Indeed. <laughs> Kind of a fun little clip. How many have seen that movie? A few of you. Yeah, just about everybody. Indeed, of course, the real God has far better reasons for doing mir miracles than just to entertain himself and his friends. And so, in epic fashion, I give you the movie The Ten Commandments, which captures the grandeur of it all and the relevancy for such a miracle, life and death relevancy, even if the special effects are a little bit dated. Well, now, there's God's power on full display, no? What is easily lost in this visual that we just uh, saw is just how confusing this all was for the Israelites as God had led them up to this point. Uh, here's, here's where we are in this story. With Moses as God's proxy, God freed the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians. Moses, you may recall, said to Pharaoh multiple times, let my people go. And ten plagues later, including a river turning uh, blood red and frogs and locusts and um, even a dark cloud that took the firstborn of every Egyptian home, Pharaoh finally relented and said, Okay, Moses, your God is too great. I will let your people go. And so, thousands and thousands of Hebrew slaves, uh, descendants, of course, of Abraham and of Joseph and his brothers and their wives, began their exodus from Egypt to the north, towards the Red Sea. They also had been given many parting gifts as a way of saying, Okay, okay, you won. To the winner go the spoils. Your God is too great. 
But now is where the plot thickens, right? After the Israelites left, Pharaoh says, essentially, what have we done? We let our slave labor get away. How are we going to get the work done now? Oh no, we have to do it. <laughs> well, we can't let this happen. And so, temptation was at hand for Pharaoh because although the Israelites were many and they were now rich with Egyptian treasure, they were also unarmed. And the Pharaoh had an army with chariots. That said, don't you wish you could intervene at this point and say, uh, but Pharaoh, has it worked to this point to resist the Israelite God? <laughs> Remember the plagues? Seems pretty foolish that Pharaoh would actually pursue the Israelites at this point, uh, but here we go. One important nuance in this story is this. Um, Pharaoh didn't make his decision on his own, according to this story. It says in Exodus, not in our lesson today, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart repeatedly. And he did so here as well. God was orchestrating a showdown, you see, between God's self and the most powerful ruler in the world in order to make a point about what real power is and is not. And boy, does the point get made. Which raises a question for all of us. In whom do you place your trust in this life? The power of God and God's promises or the power of rulers, riches, military might? Back to the Israelites. They, they don't know where they're headed just yet. What they do know is that suddenly on their flanks, an army is chasing them down over 600 chariots strong, we learn in the text. So now the Israelites panic and, and sarcastically turn on Moses. I love this line. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? I mean, they're, they're in Moses' face with this. But Moses says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. In truth, it wasn't like they were completely sitting ducks. Do you remember what led the Israelites by day and night in the wilderness after they left Egypt? You know, it took a couple days to get out to that point. Anybody remember what, what led them by day and night? Yeah, a pillar, a, pillar of, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud uh, by, by day. This was a sign of God's presence with them, and all they had to do was follow the dancing pillar. These pillars had led them to the shores of the Red Sea, but alas, there were no ships waiting for them. So the pillars suddenly repurpose. Both pillars relocate behind the Israelites, between them and the oncoming chariots, and they form a wall of fire and cloud to hold back the Egyptians, at least temporarily. So it buys them a little time. But meanwhile, they can't go forward or backward. <laughs> so now what? This is not a sustainable situation, you might say. Well, Moses says in so many words, be still, trust God, 
and move forward. This is kind of a, of a reminder that you don't know how it's going to work out oftentimes, but you don't have to. You're in God's hands. You don't have to see everything. For the Israelites, there were many confusing reversals in the process of being freed. An ancient Jewish commentary compares this rescue at sea to a man walking alone with his son in the dark night. It was a narrow road, so the father and his son walked single file. When the man sensed a thief ahead, he moved his son behind him to protect him. When the man sensed a wolf behind them, he moved his son in front of him. When both a thief and a wolf approached at the same time, the man put his son on his shoulders to protect him from both threats. The son, no doubt, felt confused you know, at being jostled back and forth by his father, though he trusted his father to keep him safe on the dark path. Moses was saying here, I think, get on the Lord's shoulders. We're moving forward. This is what you call faith. Moses held up his hand over the sea and winds, and uh, the winds blew all night, it, it says. It didn't just happen quite like it did in the movie. That's how we imagine it, but it took all night, driving back the water. Then the waters parted, and they formed, uh, they moved across the seafloor until they had a big distance between them and the soldiers. And then the pillars of cloud and fire dispersed. Remember, they were holding the chariots, the Egyptians in place, which allowed the soldiers to once again move forward and to pursue them. But once they were on the Red Sea floor, things got difficult for them. God caused their wheels to get clogged. They panicked, and God closed the waters on the Egyptians. End of story. How are we to read and understand a story like this? You know, uh, first of all, did this really this really happen? Well, it's fruitless to seek an explanation for how this happened historically in all of its details. Historically, of course, we know that the Israelites were slaves of Egypt and they were liberated. But this story is mainly a theological one. It has to do with God's relationship to a certain people. It's theological. It's a theological one in that it asserts the power of God to free those who are in bondage, whether it is literal bondage or spiritual bondage. This story proclaims that God breaks chains and calls every one of us to freedom from sin, death, and enslavement in all of its forms. That's what the story's about. And yet, as we walk along the uncertain path of this life, God's leading can be deeply confusing, just like it was with the Israelites and with the Father and Son. Now, it's deeply confusing because we can't always see what's coming up, from, uh, coming up behind us, 
nor what lies ahead. But God can. And when we think we see clearly, God might say, no, you don't, but I do. Move forward. Never mind the Red Sea. You can understand why the Apostle Paul said that we're called to be fools for Christ. There's a certain foolishness in being faithful and moving ahead, Red Sea or not. What's chasing you in your life? What looms ahead of you like the Red Sea, causing you to lose hope? As Moses said to the Israelites, God says to you as well on this day, do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to keep still. Stillness is important, isn't it? When we are not still, like frankly most of our days, we tend to put our trust in other things, not in ourselves. But when we are still, we might be open to the God who is leading us. We might let go of our false gods. And then we might be ready to move forward in faith, even with a Red Sea of uncertainties ahead. Psalm 23 reminds us memorably that even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Luther famously wrote in his small catechism, God protects me against all danger and shields me from all evil. Where are you in all this? It's finally comes down to that. As you hear this story, filter it through, wrestle with it, reflect on it, you're in here somehow. You probably don't have anything as pressing as Pharaoh's armies on one side and the Red Sea on the other, but whatever you face in life is real enough. Hmm? So keep still. Trust in the Lord. And move forward. Amen. Amen.